Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We're, we have a great guest today. He has written a book that is like no other. I mean, there have been other books written about solar energy and PV panels and things like that, but nobody but John Perlin, our guest today, has written such a comprehensive history of solar energy and the way that humanity has used solar power since ancient China. His book is called, it's brand new, it's called Let It Shine. The 6,000, yeah, you heard me, 6,000-year story of solar energy. It's humbling, it's fascinating, and in a way, it's kind of amazing uh, as you read this book to see how long human beings have been working on capturing the sun's energy and putting it to work, and yet how we're still uh, not using more of the sun's energy to fuel our world and fuel our economy. So I'm thrilled to have John on the show. Welcome to Go Green Radio, John. Um, I'm excited to uh, go on. Well, I, I want you to begin by telling our listeners why you think that it's so important for us to know the history of solar innovation. What can we learn that will be valuable by looking back at the history of solar innovation as we move forward in the 21st century? Uh, probably, uh, I think, um, the greatest... Um, Inspiration, and inspiration, I think, is the most important um, mover, is that by looking at the experience of people using solar energy to better their lives over 6,000 6, years, um, is that um, it's possible using the sun for a healthy, comfortable, productive, resilient, solar-powered world. It's, it's a we-can book. We can do it because people with far less technology um, in the past were able to do exactly what a lot of people want to do. Mm -hmm. And then um, after the we can, it's how we can. Because story after story, and I showed the perseverance, the the people, uh, the advocates, all working uh, together uh, to um, uh, make this uh, possible. And uh, example after example that no one has ever seen seen before is shown in this book of using um, all the um, solar technologies uh, that um, we uh, wish to use today. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to ask you the flip side of that question. What is the harm of remaining ignorant of solar energy's history and its role in human civilization? Well, it's like walking around um, with uh, amnesia because we uh, have um, the flip side is um, people say, well, um, it can't be done. Uh, So uh, they just uh, give up. Also, um, one of the things I discovered uh, every place I go is nobody even knows where the sun is during the year in relationship to uh, us, and that is critical in a building a solar society, and that was figured out uh, 4,000 years ago uh, by the Chinese. 
that's amazing, you know, that we could have at one point in human history discovered that and then forgotten it and put it on a shelf somewhere and, um, and, and now we have to reinvent the wheel. Speaking of solar use in ancient China, that whole section of your book was fascinating to me. Um, the wisdom and the, the you know, intu- intuition that went into some of their various uses of, of solar energy were um, remarkable. I'd love for you to talk about some of those examples. How did ancient Chinese capture that power of the sun? Well, the first thing the Chinese did was in uh, the Stone Age, uh, they learned that if you... Uh, the, 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 the sun is working for us. It's, it's, it's amazing. During the summertime, it's high in the sky and usually east and west. In the uh, wintertime, it's low in the sky and always in the south. Uh, that's for um, the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. It's the converse in the uh, southern hemisphere. So all we have to do is face our houses to uh, what's called the midday sun, which is the south, and put a hat over our house, and we've um, got a lot of the battle won because that hat shades the house during summertime uh, but allows the low winter sun uh, to uh, enter into our house when we need the heat. Mm-hmm. Then, and, um, mm-hmm. what the Chinese did was they discovered where the sun was very precisely with a um, stick that was perpendicular, placed perpendicularly to the ground, and by the shadows they could tell the seasons and the time. So they had a calendar keeper and a timekeeper. And they had a compass because they could, by the shadows, they could tell uh, east, west, and north, uh, um, and then there, there's, of course, south. And then they could design all the streets. So they ran, the main streets ran east, west. So by 4000 BC, they were building entire cities that could take advantage of the sun for every house. Wow. But and didn't that's, I that's, also read? Yeah, but that, but that's not even the end of it. Um, what the Chinese did too was they discovered another major technology, and that's concentrating solar energy to a point where, where you get um, heat, um, so much heat that you can uh, make a fire. And according to Confucius, uh, that's how they lit their evening fire. And in the last ten years, they have found thousands of these uh, devices. That's incredible. So solar concentration, uh, we thought that was so new when <laughs> when some of the large solar farms were using this with mirrors and what have you, but it's actually a pretty, uh, pretty old idea. Now, talk to us about what the Greeks uh, employed in terms of solar architectural innovations. Talk to us about what they were doing. Well, um, interestingly, um, Several thousand years later, uh, the Greeks replicated uh, what the Chinese did, uh, both with concentrators and uh, with um, magnify, uh, magnifying glasses to um, use to start the evening fire. They also um, built um, all their um, homes uh, so they could take advantage of the sun during the winter time and avoid that heat during the um, 
uh, summertime. And they built every city for 300 years uh, in that fashion. And all the rural uh, areas, too, the rural architecture um, mirrored that. What's most interesting, and people say, well, how did we forget that? Well, the rural people never forgot that. And in uh, rural China and rural um, Turkey, where the Greeks uh, built their uh, cities, uh, they continued that tradition uh, to this day. That's amazing. And and how was that um, transmitted? Was it was it ever written down? Are there you know how did you discover the history of these solar applications? What was the means by which that knowledge was uh, transferred on to future generations? Well, the fact um, one of the rules of uh, writing my book is I don't make assumptions. And so, therefore, all my book is based on uh, written documents. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, with the Chinese, I was lucky to be at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I, a plethora of Chinese uh, postdocs were uh, uh, coming to our university. Their wives, who also had PhDs, had nothing to do. And um, I've been gathering information for this book for, like, two or three decades, mm-hmm. and I asked them in the 1990s, did the Chinese do anything in solar architecture? And they just laughed at me, and they said, why, even today, a south-facing house gets 30% more value on the real estate market. Wow. And wow. They said, and they said, um, we, um, there's all these ancient architectural um, writings about uh, the um, value of using solar energy, but they've met, never been translated into English. And so I was fortunate uh, to um, obtain these um, documents into uh, English. And then I had the leading historian of uh, Chinese architecture um, go through that chapter to make sure I got everything right. So uh, then... Uh, the uh, story of the uh, concave mirrors is something totally new, too, because although Confucius wrote about it, they had not found any of these devices until about 10 years ago, and there's nothing written in English about it. And I was fortunate to find a metallurgical engineer from Taiwan who could translate uh, these um, archaeological uh, documents. But in Greece, uh, Aristotle... Oh, um, the students of uh, Socrates mm-hmm. uh, all wrote about building with the sun. In fact, Socrates gave a um, lecture on how to build uh, what we call passive uh, solar buildings, a uh, three-page lecture uh, that um, I was fortunate to um, get translated. And the Romans were doing this as well, is that correct? Well, the Romans, they actually uh, did a great improvement on the uh, solar architecture of the Chinese and the Greeks. Uh, they discovered how to make clear window glass. Mm. See, what's really interesting is people worked in glass for thousands of years, but nobody thought of covering windows with um, either clear stone like mica or um, with window glass. 
And about 66 A.D., uh, the Romans discovered how to make clear window glass, and then they discovered that glass has a special property, which we call the greenhouse effect, where the short waves of the sunlight come in, but as the sun strikes uh, the uh, floor, say, it um, changes into a long wave of heat radiation that can't get out of the glass, and mm-hmm. so the room heats uh, much uh, greater. Uh, that's why today we feel in a car, even though it might be cold outside, uh, much warmer, or mm-hmm. during the summertime, we can't even, um, after having parked the car, we can't even hold on to the um, steering wheel, Right. 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 Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of your uh, research and some of the uh, more modern solar innovations that you've discovered, uh, some of the 19th century um, discoveries and things that I was fascinated to read. So folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last. Return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thanks so much for joining us in case you're just tuning in. Our guest today is John Perlin. He is the author of a book, new book called Let It Shine, The Six 
2,000-year-old story of solar energy. It is so comprehensive, and it's great to see um, all these examples of innovations and the use of solar energy in so many different ways, all the way from ancient China to ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and then all the way up until the present time. And what's so remarkable, when you read this book, and I want you to read this book, listeners, this is really important, you see how human beings appreciate and capture and utilize the energy of the sun and then something else comes along typically a fossil fuel in some instances it was wood and then uh, later we got distracted with oil and other things and we forget about and kind of shelve our interest in solar innovation um, only to realize that it's time to pick it back up when those other cheap uh, fossil fuels don't promise, don't live up to their promise and keep going and uh, uh, the way that we hope. And so John has written this book and, and John, I'm, I know you wanted to share with us a, a few more innovations from the Roman Empire or the uh, this Roman innovation. So why don't you go ahead and do that? Um, and then I want to ask you about solar motors. Well, um, what I wanted to tell people was that, um, first of all, not only the text is thoroughly documented from the literature of each time period, but also uh, has more than 350 illustrations uh, for each uh, time period that's discussed. So um, people can relive what happened in those t- in times past. Mm-hmm. Also, um, what is interesting is that by the time of the Romans discovering that you can trap um, heat, solar heat, uh, with window glass, we had developed all the solar technologies by about 2,000, uh, um, uh, 2000 years ago. Uh, one is building with the sun. Two, uh, concentrating solar energy uh, so we can get very high temperatures. And three, trapping um, solar heat uh, with glass. Let me ask you this, John. In your research, did you find that the use of solar energy amongst all these various ancient civilizations were connected to one another? I mean, were they building on the knowledge of one another or was it your, um, did it indicate, your research indicate to you that um, they were building their own innovations from scratch each time a society started to use solar energy? Well, the Greeks and the Romans were very connected. Vitruvius, the greatest architect of all times, was a military engineer in Greece and saw lots of solar cities. And so, therefore, when he wrote his great book called The Ten Books of Architecture, he used these examples on um, how to build. These were especially valuable uh, for saving um, wood that was used to heat the baths by Mm -hmm. orienting the... um, buildings, the bath buildings correctly. Um, Modern people, when I wrote an article about this, did not believe they could get temperatures of up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit in their baths just using glass to trap solar heat. So they Mm -hmm. built a um, demonstration of um, exactly what the Romans did, and their conclusion was the um, Romans uh, could do this and not only could they do this during the daytime, but because, and this is what people say, well, what do you do when the sun isn't shining? Because they used materials 
that held in the heat at night, um, the heat was uh, saved. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Now, before reading your book, I'm going to I'm going to admit that I did not know that solar motors and engines were actually a 19th century innovation. I thought they were much more recent, much more modern than that. And that kind of blew my mind. Um, I'd love for you to talk to us about those early systems and some of the pioneers who invented them. Well, the um, during the Renaissance, uh, people were infatuated with uh, solar, uh, especially concentrating solar. Uh, because they said, well, if we could get fires uh, with these um, small mirrors, just think if we could build a huge mirror, we could have the most powerful weapon possible. We could burn cities. We could burn armies. Uh, So this um, thread continued into the industrial age. And as people started to consume so much um, coal, every... But, you know, there was a steam engine, right? So people began to worry about running out. And so Augustine Mouchot decided to take this ancient technology, use it to create steam, to create solar steam engines, because he said, one day Europe is not going to have any coal and we're going to have to reap the rays of the sun. <laughs> That's incredible. And and how talk to us about the the you know the how these solar motors and engines were employed and why did they go away? Well, the, actually, um, by nineteen fourteen, they had developed a, a solar um, steam engine that was competitive um, with um, fossil fuels, but the only fossil fuel at the time was coal, and this was in Egypt, like in California at the time, there was no cheap uh, fuel. So they were able to announce that solar energy is no longer a dream, but it's a practical um, way of um, pumping water. However, 1914 was not a good year to invent something because that was World War I, mm-hmm. and the Middle East was not a good place uh, to advocate solar energy uh, because during this time is when the great discoveries of oil occurred. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, and so, and so um, we developed um, sort of like, um, uh, we developed amnesia uh, by the um, fossil fuel uh, invasion, you might say. Is anybody working on bringing these back? I mean, we're hearing an awful lot about all kinds of electric motors, of course, plug-in hybrids, uh, battery, uh, you know, uh, powered engines and and what have you. To your knowledge, John, is anybody working to bring solar motors and engines to the forefront in today's modern society? Well, one of the most interesting um, evolutions in uh, the use of uh, these um, solar um, engines is that um, originally, and it's still happening, is that um, the design, and this is the amazing thing, the design in 1914 is the same design uh, that 99% of the solar um, plants 
in uh, Spain and in the rest of the world are using. So, yes, uh, they are using these right now to produce electricity, but even more so, they're interested in combining the solar heat uh, with the heat created by um, conventional engines uh, for mining operations, and this was one of the original uh, dreams of the um, earlier uh, inventors. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of solar heat, um, you know, I, I've traveled to China many times, and you see solar water heaters on top of the roofs everywhere. Um, and I think that, you know, that's catching on in the U.S. as well. There are some places where you see quite a few of those and some, where, uh, some areas where that's, that's not the typical technology for heating your water. Um, but I was under the impression this was a fairly new technology, but really it's not. Um, solar water heating has been around for a long time. Talk to us a little bit about the history of solar um, water heaters. What could I say without um, any uh, pejorative um, mm. uh, manner that uh, Jill uh, Buck was suffering from uh, solar amnesia? I was, and now I've been awakened. <laughs> All right. She has yes. seen the sun. She has let it shine. Let it That's shine. What That's I right. Say. <laughs> and the fact is, and this is a really, um, this is actually what started my research, was that um, I discovered that solar water heating began commercially in the United States in 1892. What it was was a combination of discovery back from the Romans that glass trapped solar heat and that black painted metal um, gets really hot. And if you put water in those tanks, um, you'll get hot water. Mm-hmm. Then the only question was, what happens when those tanks are up on the roof at night? Uh, they cool down. So in 1909, the modern solar water heater, the type of solar water heater that's so ubiquitous in China, was invented where you separated the collection of the heat um, with the storage. Ah, I see. I see. So the modern solar water heater was invented in 1909, and the basics have not changed over, um, geez, over 100 and, um, you know, about 110 years. So why aren't we using them now in a a much more... Well, well, that's the whole problem is once not only do we have amnesia, we have myopia because... Mm -hmm. All over the world, um, they are using them. For example, I gave a lecture in Istanbul in August, and then I went trekking, and uh, trekking in the western Turkey, and all you could see was solar water heaters on every uh, roof. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's myopia because we live in America. Or you go to Austria, mm-hmm. or you go to Germany, and you see solar water heaters on every uh, rooftop. And just like you mentioned, uh, you see them everywhere in China, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, so, it, it's so, not just, um, you know, very um, large, expensive, affluent families that have these. This is on every apartment building, every, I mean, every dwelling has it. Well, well in, in Israel, for example, uh, 97% of the um, 
of water heating is done with solar energy. And like you say, and I'm glad I have a um, supporter in the audience, it's mm-hmm. on every rooftop. It's not a rich person's um, pleasure. It's just a generally accepted way of doing things. Turkey, exactly. Cyprus, Austria, um, you know, we can, um, the Caribbean. Uh, it's just that it's not happening here. Interesting. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with John Perlin and his book, Let It Shine. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us in just in, in case you're just tuning in. Um, we have John Perlin with us. He's the author of Let It Shine, the 6,000-year story of solar energy. And I want you to get out on Amazon and pick up a copy of his book. It really is fascinating. You know, there truly is nothing new under the sun to include solar energy. Um, his book will demonstrate to you very clearly and with great attention to detail in his research that all the way back... Um, um, into 
antiquity, ancient China, ancient Greece, ancient Roman times, solar energy was a pivotal form of heat and, and architecture and solar water heating. All of this has been going on for a long, long time. And the good news is, is that that means there is the human know-how to go back to this uh, beautiful form of clean energy. And we can do this. As John mentioned in the first segment of this show, this is a we can kind of book. Um, and so I'm excited to have him talk some more about it. You know, John, I think that it's fair to say that when everyday people, at least here in the U.S., think about solar power, they think of photovoltaics because we see solar panels all over the place and they're they're growing in terms of uh, where they're springing up and, and what types of applications there are in residential, commercial applications. And I think that the PVs shape our understanding of solar energy. So talk to us about the history of photovoltaics. Help us understand how this particular form of solar energy Energy has evolved. Well, um, in um, the uh, 1860s, while laying uh, the transatlantic cable, uh, they were working with a material called selenium uh, to act as a quality control device before they submerged the cables, right? Mm -hmm. So um, they thought um, it was very um, resistant. To, uh, but they discovered that when it was exposed to sunlight, um, it lost that quality and became conductive. So everyone got interested in the material in the 1870s, started to experiment with it. Uh, one group shined um, a candle nearby on this material called selenium, and they had hooked it up to a measuring device of uh, electrical um, power, and suddenly... Um, when they shine the light on this um, material, the needle just jumped, mm. showing that it was the light that created the electrical uh, current. Uh, but this ran against everything we knew in science at the time because we believed that the only way to uh, power um, a engine was with heat. And so for a number of years... Um, the people who dared to work in this field uh, were considered uh, heretics of science. But then Einstein discovered that um, light comes down to us in packets of energy, which we call photons. And so the light has energy uh, depending on the wavelength. The shortest wavelengths, according to Einstein, uh, have the uh, most uh, powerful uh, energy. So therefore, Einstein shows how photovoltaics work combined with the new discoveries at in his age of um, the electron. And so therefore, by 1905, the scientific basis of photovoltaics was laid, and Einstein is the father of photovoltaics. Hmm, now, it took a number. You're, you're going to say, Jill? No, I just said that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I've never uh, never heard Einstein described in that way. Well, what's very interesting is the story of photovoltaics is also the story of both the limitations of 19th century physics and the uh, new discoveries of uh, 20th century physics, making photovoltaics, the first power source 
uh, that's based on 20th century science. All the other uh, sources of energy are heat energies, except for wind, um, and therefore are based on very, very old ways of thinking. So here we have the first, what I call the first quantum power source. And in the 1950s, people were starting to work with silicon, and um, we were entering the semiconductor age. Mm -hmm. They um, took a semiconductor um, device, uh, placed it in sunlight, and they discovered, just serendipitously, they, discovered, they said, well, let's see if it uh, produces any electricity. And suddenly it was producing more electricity uh, by order of magnitude than the old ways, mm-hmm. the original ways, which I um, discussed earlier. And so suddenly, in 1953, at Bell Laboratories, a solar battery or solar cell project began that produced in one year uh, the um, type of material we use today that has sired this uh, great solar revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually, actually, um, uh, um, I'd like to um, tell your listeners, this year is the 60th anniversary of uh, the modern solar cell uh, where, for the first time, it was discovered that light could be transformed directly into electricity to produce usable, practical um, power. Well, and that's very exciting. I think, you know, one of the things that we've heard so much about is the disparity between the price per kilowatt for solar, generally coming from, you know, PV panels for uh, uh, electricity costs versus some of the fossil fuels. But one of the things that I read about in your book and I've, I've heard others discuss is how integrating photovoltaics into the skin of a structure, whether it's, uh, you know, the sides of a building, the roof of a building, can actually change its economic value. Talk to us about this uh, evolution of photovoltaic materials and what you see as the future for integrated PV? Well, actually, I'd like to back, um, take a couple of back steps to say that when um, the modern solar cell was invented, it was at about $300 a, um, a watt. Mm-hmm. And today, it's at about from $0.65 cents to a dollar a watt. Mm-hmm. And in um, many states now, solar electricity just on the rooftop is cheaper than um, what we call conventionally uh, generated electricity. Mm-hmm. And this is giving rise to a very, very disruptive moment in the electric uh, generation market. Mm-hmm. We're, we're at the cusp. Uh, and this is so exciting. We're at grid parity, which means solar energy is producing electricity as expensive or cheaper uh, than at, uh, say, a coal or um, oil or gas plant. Mm-hmm. And that's even without government subsidies and uh, carbon tax of any kind, employing the economics of the entire cost of a kilowatt of fossil fuel uh, electricity. But but talk to us about this integrated PV and how that might change the economics of it. Well, integrated PV is interesting because you're no longer talking about the cost of electricity. 
uh, you're, you're talking about the cost of a building material. So um, granite doesn't produce any electricity, while mm-hmm. if you use PV as a building material, um, it both generates electricity and also serves as the skin of a building. Uh, but this is um, yet to um, really be, uh, you know, to really uh, take off because of uh, certain problems. However, um, just PV on the rooftop right now um, through companies like um, Solar City, um, through um, just the um, dropping price of photovoltaics is now um, competitive in California, for example, or extremely competitive um, in Hawaii um, than um, what we call, like I say, conventionally generated electricity. We're at this exciting, exciting moment. I, I can't believe it. Uh, and it's the 60th anniversary of the development of the solar cell that may, is making all this possible. Is We're at the point of what's called grid parity, and we're at the point of where photovoltaics is being discussed very excitingly uh, in the investment community. Let me ask you this, John, because this is kind of a hot topic in public policy these days, this idea of um, utility-scale power plants versus uh, distributed generation. Of course, solar can play a role in both um, in terms of you know having distributed generation, small solar arrays on residential housetops and what have you, all the way up to these gargantuan, way out in the desert, huge solar farms. What's your thought um, on the... Uh, on the ultimate use of solar energy in terms of what the future holds. Do you think that um, we'll have a, a good amount of both, or do you think that ultimately public policy will lean in one direction or another, distributed generation or utility-scale generation? Well, the beauty of photovoltaics is that it's a modular technology. So it can be, like, tailored for any power need from um, a milliwatt to a gigawatt. So what this does is allows us on the rooftop to make every house a uh, power plant. And the beauty of that is that this is where the demand is. It does not require like thousands of miles of transmission where you lose like a 15 to 20% of your uh, power. Also, you're not competing at the wholesale level, but you're uh, competing at the retail level, which is um, far easier for um, solar to um, be uh, cost competitive. Mm -hmm. And also, no one has ever said that a, a rooftop is like a national park. You don't have to worry about an EIR. You don't have to worry about um, killing tortoises. Uh, you, you don't have to worry about um, creating these battles between various environmental groups. Right. But you do have to worry about utilities and regulators. And we're going to talk about that after we take a quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. We've got much more with John Perlin and his book, Let It Shine, right after this break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you are just tuning in, we are talking with John Perlin and his book, a brand new, hot off the presses, called Let It Shine, the 6,000-year story of solar energy. You can pick it up on Amazon, and I suggest that you do because it's quite illuminating, no pun intended, um, to see how long humanity has been working on capturing the power of the sun, putting it to work for all the things that we need to make uh, our society comfortable and to make our economy go and to make our living spaces uh, warm when we want them to be warm. Um, there's just so much innovation that's that's gone on over time, and John has done a beautiful job of capturing that. It gives me a lot of hope for the use of clean solar energy in the future. Now, John, there's a line in the epilogue of your book that really piqued my interest, and I want you to explain what you meant by it. You said... As solar becomes dominant, the role of utilities will inevitably change. And I know that all my listeners who work for a utility company are probably cringing right now, but I want you to explain what you mean by that. How will the role of utilities inevitably change? Well, uh, the uh, head of a very uh, large utility called NRG uh, said that with uh, storage, and this is really, really happening at this moment. I mean, this is like... You know, headline news where uh, Tesla is now going to build this huge battery factory, mm-hmm. and they're connected with the largest um, leaser of uh, solar uh, photovoltaics. Mm-hmm. And with storage, uh, suddenly people uh, perhaps can um, cut themselves loose of the um, utility. It's sort of like the dream of people, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, of, 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 of not having to pay taxes, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, it's pipe dream, but like, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. So um, there is the possibility, and people are discussing this, and the utilities are discussing this too. Is um, what happens if uh, you no longer need the grid? But the good news for utilities is that if they um, 
go with the uh, technology uh, because they have, you know, great access to all these people, uh, they could actually become purveyors of uh, photovoltaics themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're sort of at a moment like where canal builders uh, were looking at the uh, Baltimore and Ohio Railroad laying their first uh, 30 miles of track, right? Right. Yeah. What's... Where, uh, you know, people were confined to just waterways. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, on tracks, people could go anywhere, right? Right. And right. that's very analogous. But what is very analogous, I think, too, is cellular uh, versus um, people hooked up to landlines. Mm-hmm. And well, that, and, but, but the difference is, is the big um, telecommunication companies uh, went with the cellular and are very profitable. Well, and we've talked about this on Go Green Radio before, how some developing countries have been able to leapfrog over certain technologies that we have sort of worn out in the U.S. Uh, Like you said, there are countries and and there are people in, for instance, in Africa and other developing areas of the world where they will never have a landline telephone. They'll go right to cellular and forego all of the telephone poles that we grew up with. Um, Similarly, with energy infrastructure, there's a good chance that many developing countries will leapfrog right over long transmission and distribution lines from what we know as an energy infrastructure of of these large utility scale um, uh, power generation plants to a more distributed generation model. Now, here's one of the things that, you know, you touched on in your book, and, and that was Hurricane Sandy. And if we've learned nothing else from Hurricane Sandy, it is the value of distributed generation. When People were hooked up to the grid there, and power lines were blown over. There were people who were out of power for weeks, and they were freezing cold. You have an example in your book of a home that was uh, doing quite well throughout the entirety of the recovery period because it was off the grid, and it was uh, powered by solar. The problem is, is that in some areas of the country, due to the regulatory environment that we're in, um, that's not allowed. You know, people aren't just free to put on as much solar as they want on the roof and, and be free and, and go off the grid. What do you see in terms of, um, you know, any kind of conflict or political strife that we may be headed for in order to sort of unhinge that regulatory environment to allow people uh, the freedom to go off the grid if they so choose? Well, I think as more and more people see their neighbors go off the grid, um, they'll want to do the same. However, uh, there's going to be a lot of um, battles, just like there were battles between canal builders and, um, you know, railroads um, for um, the policy. Uh, It all comes down to policy, actually, rather than technology. It does. And in the past, uh, policy has been very anti-solar. For example, there's a thing called master limited partnerships, where if you invest in... um, fossil fuel infrastructure, you don't have to pay any taxes. But what they put in the tax code was that it's only viable or only allowable uh, for those people um, investing in, and they put this in, depletable resources. (laughs) That's so, uh, you know, it just doesn't even make any sense. Um, To the average American, that just seems um, ridiculous, I think. Um, you know, 
you mentioned, I, I think that there is still uh, some political right-left thinking when it comes to clean energy, solar energy. Um, I am old enough to remember when the solar panels came down off of the White House um, after being put up. And I, I find that unfortunate. And I think that one of the people that you mentioned in your epilogue is an example of someone who could make a difference. Um, some of the folks who are still a little bit skeptical about things like climate change and the need for clean energy are also some of the same folks who vehemently support our troops. And you mentioned in your epilogue someone who's been on Go Green Radio before, uh, Marine Corps Major General Anthony Jackson. Uh, and he has talked about his views on renewable energy from a military leader's perspective. I'm curious um, how significant you think it is, John, that the U.S. military is on board with solar power. And that's not just, you know, powering stateside bases and buildings, but actually using solar energy in the fighting field, you know, in the forward deployed areas, how impactful do you think that will be on the future of solar energy amongst those who might be reticent to embrace it? Well, I think one of the most amazing stories that I cover in uh, the book is the legacy of the military being the strongest supporter of um, solar energy over the last uh, 60 years. It was the military that put on um, solar cells for satellites and saw the value of um, solar satellites uh, to make America preeminent in the um, um, Cold War. Um, the military is um, always looking for the uh, best ways uh, to uh, save the lives of its uh, service people. And what they told me is that basically when you're in a firefight, you don't know when you can get fuel. Mm-hmm. But if you have photovoltaics plus batteries, you know you uh, will um, always have power. Right. And, that, and if we use that analogy to our society, mm-hmm. I think says it all because we can never be sure, like at Hurricane Sandy's, um, when we will have uh, fuel. Well, and one of the things that, you know, I'm a veteran myself, and and I think there are maybe far too few veterans in Congress today and who might listen to folks like uh, Major General Anthony Jackson when they say, look, we need alternatives. I've seen my troops bleed and die on the desert floor because of our need for fossil fuels and uh, and we need to stop this. And so I'm hoping that with messages like his, with books like yours, uh, a We Can book like Let It Shine, that uh, I mean, the American public will get behind this idea of uh, clean solar energy to create and maintain a great standard of living without sacrificing um, our environmental Uh, health and well-being. I want to thank you for being on the show today, John. It goes too fast. (laughs) One hour with Go Green Radio. I want to thank all of our listeners as well. You know, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, I want you to do two things. I want you to go out on Amazon and check out uh, John's book, Let It Shine, The 6,000-Year Story of Solar Energy. And I also want you to do one thing in your life to go green. Have a great week, folks, and we'll talk to you next week on Go Green Radio.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.